I am absolutely hyped to talk about one of our brand new partners here on the podcast, Peter Millar. You probably know that name. You probably know that product. You've probably seen all the style tips from the clothing experts at Peter Millar. I know if you're a golfer, you know that name. But if for some reason you don't, you should. Because Peter Millar is all about quality, value, and style. It is literally the most comfortable clothing I have ever worn. Let me give you an example. I recently tried out a performance polo. Now, what I love about these Peter Millar polo shirts is they are so comfortable and they've got that great style. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You look great and you feel great. Peter Millar is go-to clothing clones for vacation, work events, the golf course, even working out. If it sounds like I'm hyped, it's because I am. Because the performance polo is for you clones. And right now, you can head over to PeterMillar.com slash Rome and check out some of my Peter Millar favorites. Be sure to use my link and you'll receive complimentary shipping and a free hat. That's Peter Millar. M-I-L-L-A-R.com slash Rome. PeterMillar.com slash Rome. Yeah, I was born missing my right hand. I was born different, but I... I wouldn't be who I was if it was different, you know? I, 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 if, if I would have had two hands, I don't think I would have had the drive and the ambition. So you get to this point where you start to embrace your difference. You start to embrace really who you are as a person. Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast. This is F43, and my guest is former Major League pitcher Jim Abbott. Jim has lived an amazing life. He was an All-American in Michigan. He won the Sullivan Award given to the nation's top amateur athlete, and it was the first time that it was given to a baseball player. He threw a complete game to win gold at the 1988 Summer Olympics. He was selected eighth overall in the 1988 Major League Baseball draft and never spent a single day in the minor leagues. He pitched 10 years in the bigs for four different teams, and he did all of that despite being born without a right hand. Jim Abbott's story is an incredible one, and he lays it all down right here. It is good to be back after a break for the 4th of July. Even better to be back with an ep like this. Pot up, ep 43 is coming your way right after these words from my pals at Casper. I gotta tell you, no joke, falling into bed has taken on a whole new meaning ever since I started sleeping on my Casper mattress. I love it. Their engineers have created an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience. You get one and you'll understand why it is the internet's favorite mattress. Casper has created three unique mattresses to help you sleep cool and comfortably year-round. The Wave is engineered to relieve pressure at 36 different points. The Casper mattress is more breathable and comfortable than ever before, and the Essential mattress is innovation at a great price point. All of them are designed to coddle and comfort your every move, and they all provide the perfect support for every position that you sleep in. Find out why Casper has hundreds of thousands of happy customers like me. Try your Casper mattress for 100 nights in your own home with free shipping and returns. Go to Casper.com, use the code ROAM, save $50 on the purchase of select mattresses. Casper.com, code Rome, and save your 50 bucks. Terms and conditions do apply. See site for details. I love my Casper. I know you'll love yours. Now, before I get to Jim Abbott, I need to clear the messages off my voicemail machine. We did not have a podcast last week because of the holiday, so this thing is busting at the reel. I can't say that I'm looking forward to it, but the sooner I get it over with, the sooner we can all get to Jim Abbott. If it seems like there are more messages than normal, it's because there are. My apologies in advance. First new message. Romy Justin from Melbourne. Unbelievable segment with the flight deck on Friday. James Kelly is now my favorite character on TV anywhere. Message saved. Next message. Jim, what's going on? This is David in Buffalo. Now with the Warriors signing DeMarcus Cousins. Wait a minute. Why am I talking about the NBA? The NBA fucking sucks. War the NHL. I'm out. Message deleted. Next message. Yo, Pim. The simple fact that you didn't get into the Radio Hall of Fame is fucking bullshit. You are the true pimp in the box. You are the one voice of radio. You've kept us all up. We backed you up. We did everything we could, but you deserve the National Radio Hall of Fame. Keep doing what you're doing. We'll get you in soon. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Ron. Brandon Windhorst here. I just wanted to say 
all the speculation about where LeBron's going to go has me so stressed out. They only need four Big Macs tonight instead of the usual seven. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jimmy. How you doing, buddy? Hey, I just want to let you know it's a silk bobblehead doll night Friday at the Chevron on Warner Avenue in Huntington Beach. Come on. Message deleted. Next message. Fuck, Rome. I'm sitting here listening to your podcast on Charles Barkley, and I've left so many messages, but none of them get played. But anyhow, love your show. Message saved. Next message. Rome. What's up? It's Phil in Spokane. I'm at my son's bachelor party. Say hi to Rome, everybody. Romy, my homie. Out. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Rome. Scotty Farrell here. Farrell on the bench. I'm in Chicago, Wrigley Stadium, enjoying some beer and some brats out here. And this guy comes up and talks to me. He says he's a really big guy on your show. He says he made your show famous. I don't know. He wants to talk to you. Here he is. What's up, Jim? It's Dr. Dave. Message deleted. Next message. Jimmy. Jeremiah in Colorado. Yeah, I just got home, turned on the TV, and what the fuck is this? Cornhole Championship. What in the hillbilly bullshit is this? Fuck Cornhole. Message deleted. Next message. In the box. Wrestling with no socks. Cornstash Adam Hawks. Kelly's forehead blocks. The fun little algae drops. Bad sounds as Jimmy talks. CBS Sports most deaf. Message deleted. Next message. Rim Jome. Been following you since Burning on the Four Letter Network. Never had the pleasure of listening to your radio show due to the line of work. Really miss your show on Showtime, and this podcast helps build that void. As always, the pimp in the box does excellent work on all fronts. Also, simulcast kicks ass. Doc in Detroit. Message saved. Next message. Yeah, Romy, it's Lauren and Abel. For the love of God, I can beat Mona. For the love of God, shoot me, shoot me, or I don't want cancer, so I feel really bad about that. I wish I could have said something to her and apologized, but and tell Hawk I love those shirts. I saw one the other day, and I was going to send it, but I was like, nah, he wouldn't give a shit. So anyway, talk to you later. Bye, in Naples. Message saved. Next message. Good job, England. Good job, Lauren and Naples. Message deleted. Next message. Make it quick. We might use it to do it. I've been a bad boy, bro. You dig? Wasn't me. Back to you, Bob. Thank you, Phil. Ouch! Message deleted. Next message. Jimmy Johnny Scabs here. Hey, I was just looking out my window, watching my neighbor clean up his dog shit. I started thinking about Cal in Vegas. Uh, anyways, what do you think about his odds for the smack off? Message deleted. Next message. Hi, it's Andy from Rockland. I'm going to make it good and I'm going to make it quick. LeBron James smells. He smells bad. So, who cares about the Lakers? I'm a Warriors fan all day long, and you guys have a great day, and uh, hopefully this is stupid, but I'm serious. I've, I've, I'm not going to say I've been with him, but I've been on the, the floor at the game, and he smells. All right. I love you, Jim. Message saved. You have no more messages. Damn. <laughs> Where do I even start? There's a whole lot to go through there. The flight deck, making the pantheon of great TV characters ever. Sam Malone, Tony Soprano, Don Draper, Walter White, James Kelly. Hell yes, the flight deck does belong in that conversation. My man, Phil in Spokane, thanks for dropping me a line from your son's bachelor party. Hope you showed the boys a good time. And thanks to all of you who are still finding the show through the simulcast and for all the Hall of Fame love that's still coming in. I know that you all did everything you possibly could to put me in. I still think eventually that's going to happen. And how about Johnny Scabs coming off the top rope to take a shot at Cal in Vegas? And Wendy checking in after all that reporting on LeBron? Although I'm pretty sure that that was not windy. And man, what a performance from the Lady Clones. Lauren in Naples. Andy in Rockland. Two Lady Clones who are pretty much legends of the voicemail. 
Lauren wants to take that shot at Mona. Andy hates LeBron. And why? Well, at least she's got a reason. Because he smells badly. LeBron stinks smack. And she knows. Andy, come on. Only thing missing from that voicemail was Kathleen breaking down Mad Bum's latest start or Sidney Crosby's, quote, luscious ass or even giving us an update on the incarceration status of her boyfriend. Clones, nicely done. Except for you, Dr. Dave. Not even Scotty Farrell can save you, Doc. Let me talk to you for one minute about Stamps.com. In fact, I'm talking to anybody who has a business. Take the U.S. Postal Service. That's a very important tool for any business, right? It reaches every household every single day. Stamps.com is the easiest way to access all the amazing services of the post office. I've got a business. I need the post office. I use Stamps.com. It saves me time. It saves me money. It makes my life so much easier. And it can do the same thing for you. Create your Stamps.com account in minutes online with no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. Click print, mail, and you're done. Again, Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. I'll tell you why I use Stamps.com. It's easy, it's fast, it's convenient, and we're all looking for an edge. We're all looking for more time. This helps me save time. And right now, you too can enjoy Stamps.com with a special offer which includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, hit the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Rome. Stamps.com, enter Rome. Tough as it is to imagine, only 10 pitchers have thrown no-hitters for the New York Yankees. That's pretty rarefied air right there. And it's the air that Jim Abbott has been breathing since 1993. Indians have not had a man pass first base. By Erga, batting 318. And the ground ball is short. Bellardi, he did it. He did it. No hitter for Jim Abbott. Jim Abbott throws a no hitter. Now, that amazing moment would define most ball players, but it does not even begin to define Jim Abbott. He and I sat down for about a half hour and we talked about a number of things. And it was not just about the decade that he spent in the major leagues. We spoke about his childhood in Flint, Michigan, where he used sports to try to fit in. And he admits that now, even today, it's still a challenge to fit in. We talked about what it was like when the cheering stopped. And like many athletes, he was forced to confront what his identity would be and what he would do next. And how he's filled the void that baseball left by continuing to help and inspire so many others. I've been in this game now for about 30 years, and I would be hard-pressed to find an athlete during that time that was more beloved and admired than Jim Abbott. And I was thrilled to have him in studio to sit down for this candid and heartfelt conversation. Wow, 1999. (laughs) That seems like a long time ago. I've been, Jim, I've been so fortunate in my post-baseball life. I, uh, I've stayed out here in Southern California. Um, I've made a lot of friends and connections in the baseball world. So I, I've, but a lot of the things that I was doing off the field during my career have become my main focus in my post-baseball life. I do a lot of mentorship um, with kids with disabilities, kids missing hands, kids, you know, facing very similar challenges that I faced growing up. Um, and, and that's been important to me, reaching out. You know, I, I sit at my desk. I basically have a uh, desk full of letters and, and envelopes and photos. And, and so I spend a lot of time doing that. I get a chance to speak to a lot of great people, a lot of great places. And um, I'm watching my daughters grow up here in Southern California. I'm, I'm very lucky. Can't beat that. That's the very best life. And it seems to me if you sit at your desk and you see all those letters and on the envelopes that are still coming in, it's clear that they were coming in when you played, but they're still coming in. And I'm going to ask you about that. You know, Jim, your final thoughts, though, about your career. For instance, I talked to a lot of athletes, and all athletes want to go out on their own terms, and almost none actually get to. Were you able to? I wouldn't say so. I retired earlier than I wanted to. Obviously, the end of my career was was a struggle. You know, here in, with the Angels, I went two and eighteen one year, and and really faced failure, faced um, struggle, faced something that had been such a big part of who I was: success on a baseball field, success athletically. Um, and and so I had to stare that down at the end of my career, and that wasn't pleasant. I wouldn't call that going out on your own terms. Um, looking back on it, I don't know if it wasn't for the very best you know I really had to come to terms of who I was without the game of baseball 
And I think that prepared me to be uh, to move on in my life and to do some of the things that I'm doing now. Right, so what was that like? Because so for, for so many people, when you're an athlete, you have so much invested in it and you make so many sacrifices and you put that time in, it becomes your identity. And then all of a sudden that gets ripped from you. What was the transition like for you off the field? It was brutal, you know, to be honest with you. You, you face failure um, in a very public way, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I had used baseball, I, I really believe this, it, as in, in sports in general, growing up in Flint, as a way of fitting in, of being a part of something, being on a team. That meant the world to me, you know, and, and, and to have that, you know, foundation crack and, and crumble underneath you. It really takes a lot of self-introspection to say, okay, what am I? You know, every, every restaurant I walk in, do people know my, know my record? Do they know my earned run average? Do they care? And, and when, you, when you're winning, that's fine. But when you're losing, you sort of learn the lesson that people don't care. Huh. <laughs> Not everybody's following. You know what I mean? You can be your own person without having to be a baseball player. Sure, I would imagine. I think we've all seen this. So if, you have, if you're in any kind of walk of life or a public life, do you see this, right? These doors swing open for you, and then all of a sudden, the doors don't swing open anymore, or the cheering stops. It can be a really challenging thing. Now, you talk about growing up in Flint, and you wrote a great book. You have a great book called Imperfect, and it's a terrific read. And you write about the fact that you badly wanted to be like every other kid growing up, but frankly, that wasn't possible. So what was it like to grow up differently? Well, I grew up differently. I was born missing my right hand. And, um, I, you know, I know a lot of people have it a lot worse than me. I, I get that. And, but I knew what it was like to be different, you know, to be on the outside looking in and, and, and wanting to be on a team. You know, that high school varsity jacket in Flint, Michigan, those athletes, those were my heroes. The teams that they played on were the teams that I wanted to be a part of. So, um, you know, I used sports in that way. There was a loneliness sometimes in, in my life, and, and I spent a lot of time shooting baskets. I spent a lot of time throwing a baseball against a wall. And on the field, on those teams, playing, competing, that's where I found, you know, that acceptance and, 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 and that reward, that pat on the back. You know, Jim, you were a star in high school. You were a star in college. You made it to the major leagues. I mean, in that sense, you were living this amazing life. But just to touch on something you said, was there a loneliness in being different? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it, it remains to this day, you know, I, I mean, I, you, you come Even to as terms, Jim Abbott, 10 yeah, year MLB. Sure. You come to terms with who you are and, 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 you know, I think of it this way and, <clears throat> you know, when I was young and, and missing a hand, um, there was, there were very awkward moments, you know, walking down a school hallway, those awkward glances, those, those difficult questions to ask. You know, whenever you're assimilating into a new school or a new classroom or a new team, there's always those barriers to sort of jump over. And, and so I used baseball in that way to sort of to fight back, you know, and to compete. And, and that gave me a real strong sense of self-esteem. Um, but as you get older and you go through a career of, of, of success and failure, um, you start to be thankful for it. You know what I mean? In some ways that yeah, I was born missing my right hand. I was born different, but I, I wouldn't be who I was if it was different. You know, I, 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 if, if I would have had two hands, I don't think I would have had the drive and the ambition. So you get to this point where you start to embrace your difference. You start to embrace really who you are as a person. Now I would imagine I was going to ask you about that. It seems to me that you would not have necessarily had that drive or that ambition, and you start to embrace it. But it can't be an easy thing. For instance, how long did it take you to fully embrace that, to fully understand that? I feel like it's ongoing hmm. today. You know, I, I um, you know, I raised my, I raised two daughters in the area, and I, and I would see how they looked at me. I would see how I always wondered what they thought around their friends and walking into their classrooms and going to career day and, and all those things. So, can you tell that story? I'm sorry to interrupt. But you tell a great <laughs> story about when your daughter was five and you went to career day, and all the kids were asking questions, and then she raised her hand. What did she ask you? Well, she was sitting there with a group of kids in a, in, a, in a pre-K classroom. And, you know, after the funny questions that kids ask, you know, do you have a dog and do you know, all these different things? She raised her hand and, and, and asked me, you know, did I like my little hand? Hmm. And it really, you know, it stopped me in my tracks because you could just see her mind spinning. You could see. She never said that to you before. Never. And we never called it my little hand at home. And, and, and um, did I like it? 
Right. You know, did I like it? And, and, and I really, Jim, look back at that as a pivotal moment in, in my life because that one question from her made me think about things. It really was the impetus to write the book. Did I like it? What about being different? What about growing up the way I did? Do I embrace? Did, and I do like it. You know, it, it, it made me who I am. I wouldn't change it. It wasn't always easy. It wasn't always fair. Um, and that's what I told her that day. I said, if you can, you know, it, life's not easy. Life's not always fair. But if you can find a different way of doing things, you know, so much is possible in this world. You know, it's amazing. You talk about your daughter, and you and I spoke briefly before we started. We also have kids that are close in age, and my parenting, that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? There's nothing quite like parenting. It's an awesome responsibility. And I was thinking about your parents, and I was thinking if I were in their shoes and I had a situation like this, what I would do. I mean, would I do everything in my power to protect that child? Would I do everything in my power to say, look, you're not different than anybody else and push them out there? What about your folks? They were really young parents. How did they approach it? Very instinctively, very naturally. Um, I think, you know, they encouraged me to, to get involved. Uh, they didn't shield me away from experience. That's the most important thing. And, and they, they, you know, they encouraged me to go out and meet people, to shake people's hands, to, to get in the game, you know, to, 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 to volunteer myself, to open up to experience, whether or not there was going to be pain or frustration or success or whatever that experience might lead to. They encouraged me to do that. And um, having met so many kids over the years uh, and parents in similar situations, the, the ones where I really worry are the very, very protective one. You know, mm -hmm. the ones who, who keep kids sort of, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're perfect the way you are and it's, it's going to be fine. It's going to be, no, it's going to, it's, it's going to hurt. Some days it's going to hurt. There's going to be some pain. There's, there's going to be some struggle to it. It's not always going to be easy, but from that, you will be a stronger and better person. You will be up to any challenge in your life. And, and I, that, that's the message that my parents passed on to me. And essentially, that's the message I try to pass on in my post-baseball life. You know, in your baseball life, it was so great to watch you. How did you come up with and perfect the technique for using your glove? <laughs> uh, it was, you know, I started with my dad um, in the front yard. I think he bought me this really cheap plastic glove at the local <laughs> drugstore. And I don't know if he saw a professional career in, in my future. Um, <laughs> but we just started playing with it and and twirling the glove and letting the ball fall out and keeping the glove on my right hand and then throwing and then whipping it back on. And, and then over and over and over, I, I just kept practicing it and practicing it. And um, when I made it to the major leagues, I, I worked with Rawlings. They were great, the Rawlings Glove Company. And they specialized the glove a little bit, opened up the opening of the mouth of the glove a little bit so I could get my hand in and out easier. Um, with the Angels, I used to work with Jimmy Reese, the great coach out in the oh, outfield. Yeah. And what a great I, guy, right? Oh, he was a wonderful human, may, human being, and people may not know him, but he was about in his late 70s at that time. But he would come out in, in, in batting practice, and, and balls would be flying. It would look like apocalypse now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he would never get hit by a baseball, and he'd walk out, and he had this Reggie Jackson bat that he had cut in half, and he would hit grounders to all the pitchers in the outfield during BP. And... Um, I give him a lot of credit because I would go through my motion, fully through the motion, finish up, and then he, he had the timing down perfect. He would hit line drives and, and, and ground balls back at me, and I had to whip that glove back on it and, and get it. And he put two hats about 10 feet apart from each other, so if he got it through the hats, he won a Coke, and if I stopped 10, then I won a Coke. But, Great. Um, so it was, a, it was an ongoing process. I, I always worked at that switch. I wanted to field the ball. I, I, I did not want that to be a weakness. You, you didn't want to be different, exactly. You, didn't want, you did not want that to be a weakness, and you know, all great pitchers got to field their position. You know, I wonder, you talked about what it was like growing up with the kids, and kids are kids. Kids react the way they are. What about, and again, for those who forget, you went right to the major leagues. You didn't play any minor league ball at all. You go right from Michigan. You go right to the Angels. When you first walked in that clubhouse, what did your teammates make of you? I mean, for instance, were they curious? Were they not sure what to make of you? Or once you walk in that clubhouse, are you one of them instantly? I felt as though I was one of them. I felt very protected in that clubhouse. 1989 was my first year with the Angels. It was a veteran team. We had a veteran manager, a guy named Doug Rader. Uh, protective, smart, tough guy. Marcel Latchman was our pitching coach. My my locker was in between Burt Blylevin and Bob McClure, who had about 40 years of big league experience. And, and wow. those guys, 
you know, there, there wasn't even sort of the normal teasing you would think, you know, hey, lefty or something like that. I really felt a lot of those guys in that room took me under their wing. I never paid for a dinner. I never... Um, that's the other way around, isn't it? The, the, the new guy's got to, especially somebody drafted as high as you, the new guy's supposed to pick up the tab. Yeah. It's, well, it's why do you think that was, changed. Jim? I don't know why it's all changed, but I sure I sure appreciated the way it was when I was there because I learned from those guys. You know, you were supposed to keep your eyes down, your mouth shut, and, and, and learn and pick up what they do professionally, how they conduct themselves, how they handle people on the road, how you tip people, how you take care of people in the clubhouse. And, and um, you know, those are lessons that last a lifetime. And, and uh, so I always felt incredibly protected in that locker room. And my teammates were always great to me. Um, and I miss it. I miss that a lot. Yeah, isn't that some guys always talk about that too? It's like you love the adulation, you love the paycheck, maybe, maybe being on the big stage. But what you, mo- you miss most of all are the guys, the camaraderie. It's never like that again yeah. for the rest of your life. I'm sure you'd probably say that about your college team. Then in 1991, Probably your best year statistically. You won 18 games. You had an ERA of under three. You were third in the Cy Young balloting. What's it like when, I mean, you're an athlete or even a person where everything clicks, like everything you want to happen is happening? And why do you think it happened that year? Well, I started to get it through my thick skull about learning to pitch a little bit. I became more of a pitcher and less of just a thrower relying on cut fastball and slider. I started th- I started developing an off-speed pitch a little bit more. Um and it did click, you know, that the, that second half of that year was really something personally. It just, you know, winning games. There's nothing. That, Buck Showalter, a manager with the Yankees, used to say, starting pitchers have the greatest job in the world <laughs> because you pitch every five days and in between it's, you know, you do your training. It's like going to a health club. You do your, your endurance training, your physical training, whatever it is. But it is the greatest. When you win, it is the greatest job in the world. I would argue when you lose, it's the worst. You can't you, go back to work the next day. <laughs> you can't. You have to wait five more days to get back on the mound. But um, that year was I really had a taste of success. And, and honestly, I can say this truthfully. There were a few times I really literally almost pinched myself and said, this is happening. You know, I'm in the big leagues. I'm, I'm succeeding. This is I might just be able to stay. <laughs> Seriously, and you were killing it, and you could have won more games. There were some games that year where you didn't get the run support where we're talking about something even more, and that was a great season. But then, of course, business interferes, right? I mean, you're with the Angels. You love it here, and you love your teammates. You love the lifestyle, and you're pitching lights out, but then you start to negotiate a contract, and it's just business. You're just negotiating, and then the negotiation doesn't see itself through, and the next thing you know, you're on the phone, or they're telling you they're sending you to the Yankees. Jim, mm-hmm. business is business, but when you got that, when you were told you're going to the Yankees, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? Uh, I was, I'll never forget, we, I was in a Hawaii vacation. Word oh, didn't, great. didn't spread quite as fast as it does <laughs> nowadays, and I flew home, landed at LAX. My mother-in-law picked my wife and I up from the airport, and, and she was crying mm. in, the, in the car. We said, what's going on? She said, you were traded to the Yankees. <laughs> so wow. that was a long ride home from, from uh, LAX, and... and um, you know, it was it was tough. You know, I didn't handle that contract negotiation. Looking back on it, quite as you know, you, I was offered a four year deal. It was a very generous deal, very very generous. And um, it's not that we turned it down. We just were negotiating, and then the negotiation stopped, and I was traded. And and, and your world kind of turns upside down. And um, but I tell you, I, I it was hard to have that happen. But there, I, I honestly believe there was a little bit of a purpose of going to New York. You know, it, I, I don't know if that's a good thing to say, but playing for New York changes you. It, it, it's just such a different experience, you know, personally. But also, so many people were able to identify with my career, you know, and playing for the Yankees. And wherever I go in the country now, people identify with that. And, you know, I pitched a no-hitter there. And, and, and kids identify with that. And, and so I, sometimes I do believe that there is a reason for things to happen. And, and maybe that was the reason. Guy Jim, it's a really interesting response. Like maybe because it was a bigger stage, you were able to impact more people, inspire more people. Of course, the no-hitter, which we'll talk about in a minute, happened there. I mean, when you think of yourself, do you think of yourself as an angel or a Yankee or maybe just a baseball player or not that at all? When you look back, how do you think of yourself then? Well, I identify closely with the Angels. I'm still close okay. with, the, with the organization, and 
Uh, I have some great, great friends up there. So, I, you know, that was my baseball family. That's who I came up with. Um, but I don't, I don't really identify with one particular team. You know, I played you know, the experience, the, the depth of it. I mean, I, I mean, I came from Flint, Michigan. I had a chance to play on the West Coast. You know, played in New York City, played in Chicago, played in Milwaukee. So I love the, uh, I love the fact that, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go to the Hall of Fame. Um, but, man, the breadth of the experience, the places where I had a chance to play, I really saw an unbelievable cross-section of Major League Baseball. And, and um, you know, I'll always be thankful for that. Listen, you might not go to the Hall of Fame, but you spent 10 years in the Major Leagues, and you had an all-time moment. An all-time moment was the no-hitter against the Indians on September 4th, 1993. So many amazing moments. Never mind that... They hit you pretty good about five days earlier, but then you got another shot at them. There were so many amazing moments that day, Jim, and we're nearly 25 years later. As you look back, what was your biggest takeaway from that day, and what do you remember most? Because there were so many amazing moments. I, I think it's it's a little bit of a microcosm, you know, it, it because I pitched against the Cleveland Indians in Cleveland five days before that and just got shelled. <laughs> I didn't make it out of the third inning um, it was a brutal outing and what hadn't been a really, really great season to that point. And I was really frustrated. I was at a low point. I actually left the stadium that day. I, I went up, I threw my glove around the clubhouse, made a fool of myself. I, I threw chairs and I was, you know, I had a temper and I ripped off my Yankee gray road jerseys and put shorts and t-shirt and jeans and shoes. And I, I went running. I left the stadium. Wow. And just frustrated well, and angry. One bad dinner was a building. I mean, it were you dealing with something? for a while. The season hadn't been going that great. There's a lot of expectations, scrutiny in New York, as everybody knows. And, and I just was sort of at the end of it. You know, I was just really frustrated. And I, my team scored 11 runs. We won the game. And I came back to the clubhouse and, and uh, Buck Showalter read me the riot act and said, hey, you know, you support your teammates, you get on the bench. And so that was the backdrop of going out you know, five days later against the exact same team. And that's what stands out to me about that game. It, it, it wasn't like you came in hitting on all cylinders. There was a lot of uncertainty. And, and, and then, man, oh, man, then that countdown starts. And it's, you know, you made it through the fifth inning. And all of a sudden the fans are, you know, into it. And to be honest, I mean, you, when you, if you're a pitcher, if you get out of the first inning, are you thinking no hitter? Or did you look up at the scoreboard in the fifth inning and realize, yeah, I haven't given up a hit yet? What happened exactly? That's exactly what happened. After the fifth inning, I was sitting in the dugout and between innings, and I looked up at the scoreboard. And it didn't – I had walked a few guys, and it had hit a few balls hard. It didn't seem like a perfect game. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, no hits on the on the scoreboard. And – Everything just kind of changes just slightly, you know. And and um, but Matt Noakes was our catcher on that team that day, and and I'll never forget his enthusiasm, the smile. You could see it behind the mask, you know. I'd be on the mound, I'd see him, and I could see him smiling and that fist pump, and you know, really emotional and and sort of enthusiastic behind the play and moving around, setting up the target. And we just got into the greatest little rhythm and, and zone, and then the momentum builds, and Yankee crowd was going crazy with every out. And as you get into those later innings, it, it, it you know you have to control your breathing. You know you really have to think and and, and absorb it, but get back to the process. And I, I was gonna say, how do you do that? I mean, I understand as an athlete, you're taught this from day one. It's all about your breathing. Keep your head. Keep your composure. Slow things down. And at Yankee Stadium, no hitter, three outs to go. Especially, how do you slow the whole process down and control everything? There's a little bit of letting go. Hmm. There's a little bit of letting go to, you know, it is breathing, you know, it is routine and, and you do all your, your mental training and everything to stay in the moment, to be able to let things go, to, you know, to really be there present at, at, as you throw this pitch. And, and people say one pitch at a time, the cliche, well, that's what it is. And, um, you know, there's a little bit of letting go of the result. You have to let go a little bit and, and just just trust it. Just stay in that moment. Stay with that process. And the results are going to be what the results are going to be. But you really only have control over the way that ball comes off your fingertips. You know, when you talk about how maybe there was a reason for it, there was a reason why I got sent to New York and we're better for it. How much did your life change as a result of that day and that game, do you think? It changed it. You know, it's pretty amazing. It, it was a Saturday. I woke up, you know, went to breakfast. My wife went to the game, threw a no hitter, and everything was different. You know, it was just. Um, but not for that week, though. I mean, retrospect forever, right? <laughs> kind of, kind of. And it's it's you know, no hitter is is a, is a combination. Everybody knows luck and and um, you know, great fielding. A lot of things have to go right. Um, but 
for me, it's different in the fact that I, I, you know, to, for kids who are like me, for kids who are growing up, you know, different, I, I, I wanted to be somebody they could look up to. And I thought that that involved at some point being good, you know, not just, not just participating, not just making it, but, but being good. Like you, you, you don't, you, you don't just have to just be on the team. You can be a, a, a contributor on the team. You can be a good player. And I don't want to make too much of it, but in some ways that no hitter gives a little bit of that validation. You know, there's something that people can hang their hat on that kids can maybe say, yeah, you know, I, I can go play. I can, I can, I can do something really great. You know, do something almost unimaginable. You know, I think there was that moment. I, I would hate to think that you felt that you needed that for validation because I, I know that you did not. I think that you know that. You won 18 games in the major leagues. You made it to the major leagues. You were born without a right hand. But it's true. I mean, that moment, that moment on that stage with the pinstripes is something people will never forget. Like your teammates. You talk about how great your Angel teammates were, how protective they were. But I've never seen all my years, Jim, watching baseball. I've never seen a team react to a pitcher throwing a no-hitter the way your Yankee teammates did. Did you feel that from them? Yeah, I did. I did. I, you know, I remember the last out was a ground ball to Randy Velarde at shortstop. He threw it across the infield, and Donnie Mattingly was our first baseman, and our captain, and one of my favorite people and teammates ever. And, you know, Donnie caught the ball. It was a perfect throw across the infield, and Donnie threw his hands in the air in celebration. And it, it just took your breath away, you know, to see his excitement, his joy in that moment. And, and, and Matt Noakes came crashing out to the mound, and here comes Wade Boggs and, and a young Bernie Williams and Paul O'Neill. And, 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 you know, we go into the clubhouse, and guys are hugging and spraying champagne. And, and my wife was waiting for me out in the hallway. And, and it's just it's such a shared thing, you know. It, it, it's, it's, it, to see the joy on their face, and, and I'll never forget the Yankee fans wouldn't leave the stadium. Hmm. They, they just stayed there chanting and chanting, wanting a curtain call. So Matt Noakes and I went out together back on the field. Incredible. And um, it's just, it's so cool. It's, it's so really cool. And then the next day I woke up, had way too much champagne that night, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Great. And, and uh, I, got to the, I got to Yankee Stadium, and the grounds crew came and came and pulled me away from my locker, and, and there was a swell of reporters who had showed up at the stadium, and, and they pulled me aside for a second. They said, come out here, we want you to show you something. And they had dug the pitching rubber out of the mound. Wow. And it's a big hunk of... Can't say that's not easy to do. <laughs> no, it's, a big, it's really heavy. It's big, it's metal and, and, and rubber, and, and they, had, they had destroyed the mound, dug this pitching rubber out, had everybody on the Yankee team sign it, and Where get, is it now? It's in my office at home. And it, oh, great. It's, it's, uh, if somebody walks in my office, they'd see it. They'd go, what the heck is that thing? But it's the most cherished piece of memorabilia that I have for my career. Oh, no doubt. No, that's a great story. And, not, and credit to them, by the way, but not only getting that thing out of the ground, but getting another one in for the next day, for the next start. Hey, Jim, I hate to say this because it's one of my favorite stories. You're no hitter. Man, this thing could have gone so badly because good old Kenny Lofton tried to lay one down in the ninth. Now, I, I don't know where you come out on this. I mean, I, I, since I never played the game at the highest level, far be it for me to interpret the code, but I guess there are two ways of looking at this. Number one, you do not bunt on a guy in the ninth inning who's throwing a no-hitter, much less Jim Abbott, or, or this is this guy's game, right? He runs really well. He's trying to find a way to get on base and help his team win. Where do you come out? When you saw him try to lay that bunt down, what were you thinking? It took me by complete. It took it took our whole team by surprise. Mm. Wade, it was it was a bunt down the down the third baseline, and and uh, I, it trickled foul. And I, I love the Yankee fans because they rained down on him from the top bleachers. They weren't having they it, right? They weren't having it. But um, it it just took me by surprise. I, I I was not expecting it. Kenny actually hit me pretty well in my career, so I, I didn't find, I didn't understand what the strategy was, what, what he was doing. He, that was a part, big part of his game. He was he was electric player he, he ran fast but it would be a bitter pill to swallow to lose a no hitter in that way um you know and, and and never have that chance again so it's it was part of his game there's no question about that i don't i don't take it personally um but it would have been a very hard thing to lose at that oh, point. I, would, I would think. I would think. And uh, again, I'm just a guy behind a microphone, but I would think that would be a tough thing. And by the way, he did swing away, and then he bounced one over your head. And running the way he does, 
did you think that he was going to beat that ball out? I thought it was really close. I thought it was going to be really close. Uh, Mike Gallego at second base made a nice little jump catch and threw it to first. He, we had a terrific fielding team, and Mike Gallego was a great player. I, I really great player. Him, yeah. And, um, you know, Wade Boggs made a great diving catch a couple innings before. Got Albert Bell at one. That's when it really hit. Wade, the, uh, Albert Bell smashed the ball in the hole. Looked like it was going to be a base hit. Wade went to his knees, caught it, threw it across the infield. It was bang, bang play at first base. It definitely would have been a hit. And the umpire, you know, bangs him out. And, and it, it was like all of Yankee Stadium erupted. It was like we were all in that moment together. So, again, it goes back to teammates and, and Wade making that play and then Mike making that play in the ninth inning. God, the Indians had some mashers. You had a young Manny Ramirez, Jim Tomei. Yeah. You had Lofton who could run. You know, before we get off that topic completely, you mentioned Don Mattingly, and I know you had a lot of teammates you were really, really fond of. It seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, Donnie Ballgame, he was really your guy. What made him so unique and so different? We knew he was an amazing player. What made him such a great teammate? Well, I, I just identified with his Midwestern roots, you know, Evansville, right. Indiana. He never really lost that down-home sensibility to himself, even though he, he you know, was the Yankee captain and really the toast of New York. Uh, Derek Jeter before Derek Jeter, really. I mean, Donnie was, was revered in that city. So he had a, a presence to him, you know, that when you walked in the clubhouse, that was Donnie Mattingly. And then he just reinforced it with uh, the way he worked in a quiet, sort of determined way. I remember he pulled a rib cage muscle and he was hurt or his back and he couldn't swing a bat. But he would go out and take batting practice and just watch the pitches come in, just track it with his eyes. And and he couldn't swing, he couldn't do anything, but he just he just would track twenty or thirty pitches, just watching that ball, watching that ball. And it was that kind of dedication. It couldn't help but inspire you as a teammate. Hey Jim, speaking of swinging the bat, the best thing about the way your career ended you ended up in the National League. Now, I've never met a pitcher who didn't think they could swing it better than they actually could. I would imagine you're no different, but man, how awesome was it to get into the batter's box with the Brewers and to get that first Major League base hit? Take me back to that at bat. What happened? That was killer. I have to say. That was awesome. <laughs> I had two hits in the big leagues, um, and that, that was killer. You know, you're, you just feel so involved in the game. You know, pitch, pitching had always been a DH, and, and, um, um, John Lieber was pitching that day for the Cubs, and, and it, it was always a lively crowd in Milwaukee when the, when the Cubs and the Brewers played because oh, a lot yeah. of the Cubs fans would, dri- would drive up. And, um, so, yeah, I hadn't gotten a hit to that point. I'd pitched a few games, and, 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 and I'd found out just exactly how hard it is to hit a major league pitcher. It is not easy. Uh, but he left a fastball kind of up out over the plate, and I took a swing and lined it into, into left, uh, left center field, and uh, rounding the bases, I was like, "Whoa, that that's cool. That's fun." <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love that. And then I, I I got one more hit in the big leagues off of John Lieber again, and ri- <laughs> but it was at Wrigley Field, and and uh, that was a lifelong memory. What was the reaction like that day at Wrigley? It, it was fun. Your teammates, you know, they give you a hard time oh, about yeah. it, and they're. Um, but it drove. I think I, I believe both of them drove in a run, which was cool. You know, because you really do feel like you're part of the action instead of just sitting on the bench and waiting for your chance to pitch you're you're out there play, playing competing you're trying to do it you know i mentioned your book imperfect and you co-wrote that with tim brown who's a great great writer it was a new york times bestseller you know why was it so important to get this story on paper because that's not something you had to do well i think it you know like i mentioned in a lot of ways it went back to that question my daughter asked me you know hmm. do you like your little hand and you know, I was the human interest story of a week in high school. I mean, I, I did a lot of television shows. I did a lot of, you know, flowery newspaper articles. Um, and then when I made it to the major leagues, you know, there were people who approached me about doing a book. And and, and, and I was so happy I didn't. I was so happy I took some time. And, I, you know, I wrote it, I think, I don't know, 15 years after I played, maybe more. And it gave me time to look back. And, and look at the entire experience. And, and it gave me a way to augment those letters and correspondence that I get, you know, to this day, you know, from parents and, and coaches and grandparents and teachers and about this little boy in North Carolina or this little girl in, in Florida or Texas or Michigan or Massachusetts. And it's, it's so hard to encapsulate your entire experience in three paragraphs on a typed page in a, you know, a signed photo. And writing a book with Tim, who I loved and is a talented writer and, and loves the human side of the game, uh, allowed us to say more, 
you know, this is what it, this is this is what it was like. This is what I went through as a kid, as a player. This is what my parents said, and what my coaches told me. So, uh, it, it was it was important, and, and I'm really really proud of what we did, and, and proud of working with Tim. It's a great book. Listen, before you go, I would imagine the letters still come and. Folks want to thank you for the inspiration and for you showing what is possible. But I imagine still there's some that are saying, you know what, Jim, we don't know what to do. We don't really know what to say. We don't really know how to handle this challenge. We're dealing with something and there's some adversity here. And what do we do? What is your message for somebody who's dealing with this type of challenge or adversity, but really isn't sure how to go about it? It's just that it's you are up to this challenge. You are. I've seen it too many times. And, and yes, you don't always know what to do. You don't always have it that day. You, you know, you struggle with it. You fight with it. Um, but you get a little bit stronger. That's my message to the, to the young people who I meet because every little victory that you come across, every little obstacle that you move past, there's a strength and a resiliency that grows within you. And then all of a sudden, those obstacles, they start spreading out. They start becoming a little, uh, they start recurring a little less often. And all of a sudden you find that there's a strength to live up to it. And all of a sudden you do know what to do. You do know how to handle it. You do know that you don't have to hide your hand in your pocket. You do know that there is something within you that isn't defined by how you look or, or, or the, you know, your physical presence. A great message. Let me finally ask you this. You, you're a great athlete. You're a great athlete, and I know you're a big sports fan. And I know you saw Shaquem Griffin when he was recently drafted by the Seattle Seahawks, but he had that amazing NFL scouting combine. I know you saw that. What kind of thoughts did you have as you were watching him do what he did? I loved it, Jim. I was so happy for him. I was, um, I was, I'm a big Michigan, University of Michigan fan, football actually, and they were playing Central Florida a couple of falls ago, and I was watching TV and all of a sudden, they broke away and from the coverage, and they said, "Well, this young man's playing with one hand." And I hadn't heard a thing about him to wow. that point. And I was, I, you know, Holy I, bleep, I just right? sat back in my chair. I said, "Wait a minute, what?" <laughs> and and from that point, I've been watching, you know, and really rooting for him. And then when uh, Central Florida had that great season, and he was such an integral part of it, I was so happy for him. And then I saw him in the in the combine, and and the way he ran that forty yard dash, and the way he did that lifting, you know, that you could just see. There, there's a drive there. There's an ambition there, and and um, brought back a lot of memories, you know, from my own career and my own early days. And uh, I'm really wishing him well. I, I'm 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 trying to root for him from afar because I I remember what that was like. I remember not wanting to be the story, you know, that my hand to be the story the whole time, and 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 I want him to go out and be the best possible football player he can be. And so many people are going to grab a hold of that. If he just does that, he doesn't do anything extra, just be the best football player you can be, he's going to change the way people look at you, look at themselves and, and, and what is possible. You know, last thought. This is really interesting what you just said. I just want to follow up on that because I look at him and I see a lot of him in you or I see a lot of you in him, I should say. But that point that you made that he doesn't want to be about the hand, I talked to him quite a bit before this happened. And then he had that great combine, and then he got drafted, and then we doubled back and tried to get him again, and they were great. He was great the way he said this. He said, do you know what? I would love to talk to you again, but I just need this to be about football right now. I really want to be only about football, and once I settle in and I've done that, then I'd love to have the conversation again. But pretty much that's exactly what you're saying, isn't it? That's how I felt. and that's You know, a lot of people have tried to put he and I together in, yeah. in, in a room or in front of a camera. Have you spoken to him? I have not spoken to him. Okay. I, I'm, I have his contact information, but I feel I, I've, we've communicated through Twitter. I know he knows that, I, that I'm rooting for him. He has you know, sort of acknowledged that, and that's, that's all. I, that, I don't need anything. It's about him. It's not about me. You know, my, my, I played, but I, I, I know exactly what he feels. You know, this is about football now, and, that, and you know what? He's, he's exactly right just by being the best possible football player he can be. And how great is he gets to play with his brother? I mean, that, that's just crazy. Best just, thing ever, right? Yeah, it's just really cool. So that's such a wonderful story, and, and people have latched onto it, rightfully so, and he's going to change the trajectory of 
young kids' lives out there. There's no doubt about it. Well, Jim, your story is amazing as well, and I want to make sure that our listeners know that you have written a book in case they don't know that. It's called Imperfect. It was co-authored along with Tim Brown. And, Jim, I want to say how much I appreciate you. I really appreciate you in the sense that I remember you and I are are pretty close in age, and I was coming up, and you were coming up, and I thought, man, I, I would hate to get on the wrong side of this guy because I've got so much respect for him. I hope that he knows where I'm coming from, and I hope that I can talk to Jim Abbott one day and have him on the show. And I really appreciate the relationship that we have, and that you made time to come in and sit down and do this podcast. It was so great to get caught up. Thank you, Jim. It's been fun following your career, and we have kind of been on the similar path for a while, and, and to see all that you're doing now and to, and to have this connection, this friendship that we have means a lot to me. Can you believe it's already July? I mean, 2018 is flying right on by. And you want to make sure that we all continue to elevate our game to that next level and make this the best year ever. But you got to finish strong. Now, if you're a contractor or a builder or a remodeler, you want to listen up because elevating your game for the rest of the year got a whole lot easier thanks to my good, good friends at Lumber Liquidators. They've got a new LL Pro Plus program. Let me tell you how that works. LL Pro Plus is Lumber Liquidators' new pro services team that you can call on for all your professional flooring needs. LL Pro Plus will help you continue to kill it this year with professional pricing and dedicated support to get you what you need when you need it. That way your projects all get finished on time. LL Pro Plus gives you the ultimate value and quality. And with LL Pro Plus, no job is too large, no job is too small. So you want to put the flooring experts on your team right now. Visit your local Lumber Liquidator store or go to LumberLiquidators.com. That's LumberLiquidators.com. It's already July. Let's make sure that we make 2018 the best year ever with Lumber Liquidators. Now that's Jim Abbott, and that is as good as it gets. A truly awesome dude and a great, great conversation. If you enjoyed that, hit us both up with your thoughts. I'm at Jim Rome on Twitter, and he's at Jim Abbott, UM31, as in at Jim Abbott and the letters UM for the University of Michigan. If you're finding this pod close to when it dropped, that means the smack-off is almost here. Friday, July 20th. Mark your calendars, because for the first time ever, it is going to be on TV. So you can listen to it as usual on CBS Sports Radio or you can catch it on TV on CBS Sports Network. To find your channel, just go to cbssports.com. Clones, I appreciate you listening to this podcast, sharing the podcast, and reviewing the podcast. 43 episodes down, tons more to come, including my conversation with Armin Katayan, one of the co-authors of the brand new Tiger Woods biography, and that's going to be next week. You do not want to miss that. Make sure you're subscribed. Until then, I am out. See you next time.